times when I read Paul, I wonder what would happen if I spoke to a congregation the way that he did. We can get used to hearing particular Pauline phrases and they, they can lose their impact on us, but in first, but first Corinthians 1, 26 to 31, it's in some ways a really shocking section of scripture if we see what he's saying in context. So if we think about verses 17 to 25, Paul argued that God uses preaching, preaching the message of the cross to save sinners because God uses things out of accord with human wisdom to achieve his purposes so that he gets the credit. Paul said, God prefers things that are not obviously wise for his glory. If we could summarize verses 26 to 31 as, and if you need proof that God prefers the unwise things, just look at yourselves. Remembering that the previous verses told how God uses things that the world thinks are folly, Paul's point is clear from verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So the evidence that God's wisdom is foolish to the world is that God called these people from Corinth, which is a surprising thing for Paul to say. This section's running theme is that God chooses the unexpected. So people will boast not in themselves, but only in the Lord. We need, we personally though, need to consider how great it is for us to boast in the Lord. We are, as our shorter catechism begins, made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So that means that we are most aligned with what we are meant to be when we delight in boasting in God. The main point that we will think about tonight is that we must boast in the Lord because He saved us by Christ despite ourselves. We must boast in the Lord because He saved us by Christ despite ourselves. We'll consider this in three points. God's purpose is God's purposes, God's presence, and God's power. So first, God's purposes. This point considers how God's highest purposes described in this passage is to save in a way that He gets the glory. We see the practical payoff already in that point by remembering that 1 Corinthians 1-4 to addressed divisions in the church. He's trying to address quarreling and, and refute that, put a stop to it. Some in the congregation thought highly of themselves, as we saw and and just read again in verses 10 to 14, which led Paul to remind them that God, not human wisdom, saved them. After all, verse 18, they were saved by the word of the cross. The message about a, a crucified Savior, which is folly to the world, but God's power 
to them. It is not even that the Corinthians themselves were somehow wiser than the godless world to recognize the truth of the gospel, but verse 24, God called them, which made Christ into the power and wisdom of their salvation. Now it's important to see even there as we lead up to our passage that this calling is God's effectual call whereby He overrides unbelief and rebellion and brings people to faith. We see it in this text, verses 18 and verse 24, use being saved and being called interchangeably, as both have the identical effects, which shows that the call saves. Being called is equivalent to being saved in this instance as Paul described in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, God's call is like when He created light. He spoke and light existed, obliterating the darkness. And so, too, when God calls a sinner to believe through the gospel message, faith exists, obliterating unbelief, so taking hold of Christ. And so having noted that God's calling made the Corinthians accept God's saving wisdom, Paul then reflected on the way that they were called. Verse 26 begins by drawing attention to that calling. For consider your calling. And then the rest of verse 26 to verse 28 spells out how to consider it. Namely, keep in mind that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. To tie this to to Paul's broader point against divisions and quarreling in the church, he summoned the Corinthians to humility with each other as they ought to remember that they aren't anything special. And is that not, though, a crucially practical point for Christians throughout the ages? Paul told these believers that they weren't the pinnacles of intellectual culture. They were not the movers of society. And they were not of prestigious lineage. Paul listed three reasons here why God chooses the kind of people he does. He described those who were not wise, not powerful, and not of noble birth. Verses 27 to 28 explain why God would choose these sort of people. He chose the foolish, those who aren't wise, so that the worldly wise would be shamed. He chose the weak, those who are not powerful, to shame the strong, those who are influential in the world. And he chose the low and despised, those not of nobility, to shame the lofty 
and admired. We might rephrase the last little bit of verse 28 as God chose even those who are nothing in order to bring to nothing those who are something. God, in other words, God is going to make the no, the nobodies into somebodies and the somebodies into nobodies. God inverts the social class. And then Paul explained God's ultimate purpose behind choosing those whom the world disregards in verse 29. So that, or with the overall purpose that, it's the, it's the culminating purpose of everything that's gone before, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. One medieval commentator summarized this as, for inasmuch as God did not place the world under his faith by using the great ones of the world, but the lowly ones, man cannot boast that the world was saved by using worldly greatness. God's big intention to choose that which is humble so that the human race knows it cannot stand proudly before Him. God's purposes were to exalt Himself by choosing that which is lowly. That brings us to our second point, God's presence. So we saw how this text shows that God orchestrates salvation in a way that humbles humanity and reveals that He is the author of salvation. This point addresses the issue of calling from the perspective that it should embed humility in us. This this passage, as is clear by now, is about God's calling. Consider your calling. Opens this paragraph, which then goes on to describe that calling. Paul put it to us, therefore, that when we consider our calling, we should realize that we have no reason to boast in God's presence. In other words, if we lift our minds to what it is like to stand in God's presence, we should realize that we are lowly. This point, therefore, thinks about how Paul's intention to humble the Corinthians who tried to exalt themselves in these divisions amongst themselves extends to us today. The idea is that if we, if we remember, if we keep it before us, that we live before God, we should have no reason to think highly of ourselves. I think in some ways it can be easy for Christians to come to a, a high sense of self-esteem. After all, once God shines the truth into our hearts, we know the truth when so many around us in the world are blind. The ways of the world seem like insanity to believers Largely in part because the world's ways are insane. We look around us and we see everything in complete chaos. And we think to ourselves that it would be so much easier if people just listened to me. 
And we are surrounded by a massively confused and troubled world, knowing that we have the truth, we can easily forget that God himself had to open our eyes to show us the truth. It is, I think, a Christian temptation to think we are better than the world because the truth is so clear to us. Paul reminds Christian readers who tend towards division and self-inflation that they are not quite as wonderful as they might think. When we remember, as verse 29 tells us to do, that at the end of things we will stand in God's presence to give an account for all that we do, it should level us. Shouldn't it? God's people should live every moment knowing that we live it before God. When we live before God, we have to be humble. Have to be. We quit thinking that our way is the best way. We, we quit thinking that we have to have it all figured out according to our own methods. We quit thinking that the world is just a venue that should be captivated by our every word. Because we know that for those of us who have been called, not many of us are wise. Not many of us are powerful. And not many of us are nobly born. And even if we are, we certainly are not compared to God. And it is in His presence that we live. We should seek to remember that before we get itchy to correct and instruct other Christians even on what must be done. I mean, obviously, there are the big picture issues, right? Okay, so if, if someone misconstrues the gospel, we have to speak. If someone is living in or condoning sin, it needs to be addressed. But if we think that the church would be infinitely better if someone just listened to us about the color of the carpet, which we don't have, so I'm not talking to anyone here, then we should probably just let it go. The announcement of salvation is far more important than if any one of us gets what we prefer. We can push deeper to something more serious, though, than just things like the carpet. Perhaps even in the church, we find someone annoying or just don't like them or or what they tend to say. So we can either make a big deal out of it, create divisions in the church over personality conflict, and, and do something very similar to what the Corinthians did. Or we can remember that we live in God's presence and that He bears with us in 
infinite patience, despite all of our annoying habits, mistakes, and even outright sin. God is patient with us. If we remember that, perhaps we might remember that we are not so astoundingly wise as we once thought, but are in fact struggling sinners in need of perpetual grace put into the church with other struggling sinners in need of perpetual grace. God's presence reminds us that we're not so special after all and causes us to be humble as we live in the church because we know that we all come before God with no reason to boast in ourselves. And that brings us to our third point, God's power. This text has shown us first that God's purposes in calling those whom he has saved are to exalt himself above worldly wisdom, and then that God's presence should be a, a humbling factor in the life of every Christian so that we would avoid divisions like those that had grown in the Corinthian church. Now, though, we should consider the effects of God's calling, which Paul explained in verse 30. So, so this point is about what God's power does. Read verse 30. And because of Him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. This is a description of our salvation sweeping from how you became a Christian to final glory. It should not be missed that every single link of our salvation is grounded in Christ. You see that, right? Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Christ is the fulcrum, the pivot, the foundation, the cornerstone, and every other metaphor you want to throw in there to that Christ is the defining factor in how you are saved. Because of God, you are in Christ. When we are joined to Christ, we receive the benefits He procured, earned for us. Christ becomes to us wisdom from God. When, when we come to faith, we see that God's wisdom is wiser than the world. Christ is the wisdom from God. All the philosophers of all the ages have yet to use raw human wisdom to peer behind the veil of heaven to ponder their way into eternal life. Hasn't happened yet. It's not going to happen. But God makes known to us that Christ is the divine rescuer who has come for us. Christians see that Christ crucified the wisdom from God. Christ also becomes our righteousness. Jesus, I'm just working through these from verse 30. So if you want to know where I'm going with this. 
Christ becomes our righteousness. Jesus came to earth in human nature because God made a covenant with our first representative, Adam, that heaven could be gained by keeping the law perfectly. We, we call that in our tradition the covenant of works, but sinners can't fulfill that covenant. We, we have sinned, and so we can't claim to have fulfilled or be able to fulfill the law perfectly. So, Christ came and lived the perfectly righteous life as the second Adam to earn entrance into heaven for his people. When, when we trust in Christ, God credits Christ's perfect righteousness to you and forgives your sin. We call that justification. Further still, Christ becomes sanctification, real holiness to you. God not only removes the penalty, but also the power of sin. Isn't it beautiful? We get to sin less and less. Christ indwells us by his spirit, so to enable us more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ imputes his righteousness to us to justify us, but as our larger catechism 77 says, in sanctification he infuses grace in us so that we might live increasingly even in accord with the status he gives us. And lastly, Christ becomes redemption to us. Redemption can have a range of meaning in Scripture, but Charles Hodge, the greatest American theologian, noted that when Scripture distinguishes redemption from justification and sanctification, it refers to the final deliverance from evil. This then is our glorification when Christ will return at the end of history to free us from every last effect of sin. But even now, even now, presently, He has become to you the guarantee of that ultimate deliverance. The, so last night we considered the Westminster Assembly. Uh, they wrote the confession to which we hold. Uh, they wrote a book of annotations on, on all the scripture. Uh, and they commented on, on this verse, verse 30, that God has given you all in Christ wisdom by the revelation of the mystery of salvation, righteousness by his satisfaction and perfect obedience for our justification, sanctification by the gift of the spirit of new life and redemption both of body and soul from all evil and misery by the last and glorious resurrection in virtue of our mystical union with Christ. We can even go further in the things handed down to us. For obvious reasons, if you were here last night, I've been thinking about or reading Westminster stuff a lot. Reflecting on the idea of being in Christ, our larger catechism, 69 states, the communion and grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ, is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and, listen to this, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with him. If we missed something, any blessing you might have, it's yours because of Jesus. 
And unsurprisingly, they used 1 Corinthians 1.30 as a proof text to say that. We see then, don't we, to, to pull all this together, how union with Christ manifests in these saving benefits, these blessings. We cannot consider ourselves linked to Christ by faith without knowing, knowing that we are legally saved, justified, personally saved from the power of sin, sanctified, and totally saved, glorified as the foremost manifestations of our communion and grace with the Lord. And we have this communion with Christ by faith. We shouldn't overlook here Paul's little phrase, because of him, because of God, you are in Christ. God who desires all boasting to be in him makes you a Christian. This describes your calling because of God. You came to Christ. He overrode your doubt, disbelief, and rebellion so that you would seize Christ by faith for salvation. God has wrought salvation in sinful hearts. So that as Paul summarized and, and quoted Jeremiah 9, 22-24, that the one who boasts would boast in the Lord. So, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I hope you see from this text, it's not because you have insight and wisdom. It is because you are blind and God has not called you. And if you feel that prodding at your heart just now would you not ask God to give you faith would you not seek his calling would you not seize Christ by faith as God so moves you to do if you feel this tugging at you if you are a Christian Trusting in Jesus for salvation, rejoice. Right? We should be joyful people. Rejoice that God did not wait for you to act, but called and convinced you of the gospel's truth so that you would be saved. Consider your calling, Christians, that God has rescued you in Christ, and has given us all we need in our Savior. Let's pray. Father God, do help us to consider our calling that we, who amount to very little, if we look at ourselves from the perspective of eternity, have been valued by you. You have sent your Son to purchase humble sinners, people who have rebelled over and over again against you. You sacrificed your Son to satisfy our death penalty.
We praise you that you have made Christ to us wisdom from you by calling us, that you have made Christ our righteousness, that you have made him our holiness and our redemption. Help us to live in light of that, that we are in Christ and have all of these benefits because of it. And help us in light of that to to live humbly in the world, praying, hoping, and seeking that others might find that gift as you have given it to us. And we pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.